Welcome to UUCSW Reflections, a podcast by the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. We're glad you're here. Welcome to UUCSW Reflections. I'm your host, Amanda Hall, here with Reverend Laurel Gray. This is the monthly episode of this podcast, where we reflect on recent sermon themes and answer questions from the congregation. If you'd like to submit a question, please email it to podcasts at uucsw.org. Be sure to say which sermon your question is about, if applicable. And don't worry, we won't share the names or identifying information about question askers on this podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the sermons, The Things That Guide Us, Dreaming Beyond Reason, and The Great Reimagining, all of which can be found in this podcast feed. Hi, Laurel. Hello. How are you? Good. We're we're doing, we're back at it. I was going to say we're doing it again, but then I feel like I have to say we're back at it. We're back to doing it at it Here we are yet again. It's comforting to have this yeah. in my calendar, to be honest with you. Yeah, I like it's to good. be back at it. I know. It's good for, you know, thinking and reflecting and like a lot of giggling. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> good times. There's going to be adult coming of age. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. I, like, January has been very long because it is a five-Sunday month. And so I, coming into this, admittedly forgot what all the services were because it feels like it's been too no much. No worries. Indeed. That's what I'm here for. So this is church news. Thank you for the lead-in, Amanda. Um, mm-hmm. So similar to the Circle RE program that we launched, which is for kids and youth and is in partnership with three congregations. Um, and so the, the service on the 30th is going to be a service with those three congregations in partnership. So in addition to that sort of um, collaborative model, we are also helping launch and participating in um, another collaborative called the Community with Two Us, obviously, collaborative, um, which is for adult religious education. So Circle REs, Kids and Youth, and then Community Two Us collaborative is for adults. And that's with, um, I think there are six or seven congregations that are participating in that. Um, and that launches in February. Um, so we actually, the the sign-up information and the website are in the weekly update, and we're putting them on our website under religious education. Um, and so this is the the ministers and different leaders from the various different congregations sort of pooling our resources um, so that we all have more resources together than each of us has on our own. Um, so my contribution will be teaching um, coming of age for adults based on the coming of age program that um, David and I created last year that we used with our young people. Um, so you can sign up for that. Um, it'll be two intro sessions, then there'll be two weeks of peer mentoring and then sort of like find your own adventure. And then we'll do one final closing session. So it's a total of five weeks, but only three sessions. Um, there are other things like um, social justice movie viewings. There's gonna be a parenting group. Um, there will be a series of book discussions on um, death and dying and like different sort of burial rituals, which will be really fascinating and something I don't know anything or I know very little about. Um, so it should be really cool and interesting. Um, and the thinking is this is just the start 
Um, so then next year we can see what's really popular, um, what people want more of, and then we can sort of um, continue honing the program. And it is all online um, so that we can um, sort of make the most. The other congregations are all in Massachusetts, so it's feasible at some point we'll do things in person. Um, but, you know, COVID, winter, yeah. <laughs> you can Zoom in your pajamas. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out for that and sign up for Coming of Age. That is if you really want exciting. to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, so I was recently talking to a Philly friend about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so much about, like, thinking about, I mean, this is obviously the basis of, like, <laughs> UUism and UU congregations. Yeah. But, like, so much about, like, fear is metabolized in community Yeah, um, is the phrase that my friend said. And I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, talking about – and, like, a lot of, like, church communities just sort of – work through some very existential fear exactly Um, meaning making right and learning how to make meaning is not something that sort of like standard society necessarily teaches you how to do Um, yeah and that's right that's the point of this is is practicing that skill and doing it in the company of others Uh, because doing it alone can only can like add to that sort of existential aloneness or sense of meaninglessness um yeah so yeah, that's the goal because it's it's a skill that is kind of awkward um, and mm-hmm. is super important. Um, and so when we set up the coming of age class, we tried to set it up. Um, I created this model of a spiritual compass. And so we talk about things like moral injury um, and the, the reality that um, violating your own moral code can inflict trauma on yourself, which is something that we see a lot with um, like soldiers and veterans. Um, and the fact that that is a real psychological phenomenon points to this reality that the degree to which you know and do not know yourself and your boundaries and what is meaningful to you um, is of like really profound importance. Um, so mm-hmm. we sort of start in that place of it's easy to name the things that are outside your moral code, um, and it gets harder to name the things that are your like true deepest guiding core values and principles. So the so we set it up to be this sort of mutual journey of starting to like name the landscape. Um, mm-hmm. So it should be fun. It that was also designed great. for teenagers, so they're like. Definitely some movie clips and like silly questions. So, do people have to like know how to use fidget spinners in order to sign up? No, is that still a thing? I don't know. I'm in my mid 30s. (laughs) Yeah, Amanda, I'm not cool anymore. (laughs) You're like, I'm like, we're like middle aged now. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. Anyways, (laughs) the 90s are cool again, which is very weird to me. I know. I so like I distinctly remember this is a complete and utter like non sector digression. Yeah. But I remember when it was the 90s. Like, (laughs) I know. I (laughs) and I was like, but I remember it being the 90s and like learning about like 80s fashion and like 50s fashion. And I was like, 
I don't think there's such thing as a 90s fashion because it's like the only decade I had ever been conscious right. in. Right. And now so you I was know. like, this is just people don't have a like style. They just dress normal. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, normal for the predominant style of the time. Yeah. And I remember when skinny jeans were like the first, like just starting to come into vogue. I was like, whoa, I fashion know. I, does yes. change. Yep. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I just like didn't believe it. I don't understand what I don't know. I remember being it's like, a teenager and yeah. the 90s were uncool. Mm-hmm. And so now my adult self is like, oh my God, what? How you want to wear that? It's my so internal funny. struggle <laughs> about whether to stick to my side part guns or like yeah. mm-hmm. revert to the middle part is it's like. Too late. It's too late for me. It's too late. Yeah. Like I try and I'm like, no, no. this just looks wrong yeah anyways but i mean literally this morning i parted my hair in the middle and then i reparted it before i left my house because i just couldn't Mm -hmm. um so (laughs) i hope this is everyone's favorite digression on our podcast um so let's talk about something of equal importance to history which is the legacy of dr martin luther king um (laughs) and meaning making yeah and meaning making yeah Um, we both gave like sermons at yeah. that. We co-led a service. It was great. What's it called when a non-minister gives like a like a reflection? Talk? A reflection. Yeah. Well, we yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, good. Um Yeah, I loved getting to like think about that stuff. Um but it was harder to write than I expected it to be. Well, Your job you, is really hard. <laughs> well, if you also don't ever do it. Yeah. You know. Well, I had um, a lot of people listening to this will probably know Anya, Anya Olson, who also grew up in the church. Um, <laughs> Are you calling out I, podcast listeners? Yes, oh. I am. Anya Olson. Hi, Anya. Um, well, I just want to shout her out because, like, I did a lot of, like um, – just like bouncing ideas off of her and she let me like ramble at her until I approached something like kind of coherent. Yeah. Yeah. You did a good job. Talking with her was really helpful, but yeah, Yeah. that's basically your job is hard. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It gets easier. Um, I, so I did have a question about one, about the story you told about, um, yeah. MLK not being a UU. Yes, it is yeah. about that. Um, so basically the quote you gave is that, like, they felt like they couldn't build a mass movement of black people if they yeah. were UUs. Yep. Um, I'm wondering, like, if it's – if there was more, like, in the surrounding text about whether that was because, like, UUism was and is predominantly white. This is a really good question. about, like, the theology, like – so both. How much of that is like the culture versus like the principle? Yeah. It's both. Okay. So this is like a very tangled history and I'm not going to get it entirely straight. So feel free to Google if you want to like elaborate on the things that I'm cueing, dear listeners. Um, so part of this is you have to match up that um, story with like the timeline history of Unitarian Universalism. And so that was happening um, I think merger was 
I always get this slightly wrong. I think it was 1961. It was in the early 60s. Um, and that was when the Unitarians and the Universalists decided to merge into what is now the modern Unitarian Universalist Association. Um, and that's when the seven principles were written. That one was when the covenant was written. That's when the entire denomination as a joint body was set up. Um, and it was a process that was underfunded and so was done very quickly. When the UUA was being formed, um, there was this promise made for a significant amount of funding to be allocated to a specifically um, group of Black Unitarian Universalists within the denomination. And this was, you know, for obvious, like, empowerment reasons and because Black people are underrepresented. And this was in the 1960s. Um, and part of what happened was... Um, Reverend Dana Greeley, who was the first president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, made the promise to give something like a million dollars or something. Again, I'm going to the depths of my memory, so we can <laughs> feel free to fact check and tell me that I got some of this slightly wrong. Anyways, he promised to allocate a significant amount of funding um, to support Black people within our denomination, to support Black leadership. Um to have more than sort of a, um, I don't know, surface commitment to racial justice. Um, and then he, the funds weren't there. And then mm. nobody ever followed through. And so it was obviously mm -hmm. this really big deal. And frankly, a lot of Black people left Unitarian Universalism. There were a lot more Black people who were part of both um, the Unitarian Association and the Universalists before the civil rights movement. Um, and a lot of it was because of this issue um, with the way that the UUA at the time um, completely failed to support black leadership and black people within our denomination. Um, and so I think it's really important to hold that context of our particular denomination's history um, next to this sort of story of MLK and Coretta Scott King and how they didn't become UUs because I think it's it's partially a theological statement right um mm -hmm. that there's not like a sturdy enough foundation to support people through suffering and I think part of the confusion of that is um like Unitarian Universalism now can still feel confusing and wishy-washy to people and we're what like 60 years after merger. So can you imagine at the time when it was like, we're just creating these principles and we're creating this covenant and we're creating this entirely new way of being. Um, I can see where that felt a little squishy, right? Mm -hmm. And then add in the context, the social context of this controversy is happening within our denomination where this like promise of support is being made and then, like, nobody cuts the check and it doesn't actually happen. Of course, that doesn't feel like sufficient, um, like, emotional, spiritual, <laughs> nurturing mm -hmm. support for people that are, like, you know, being beaten on the streets during protests. Like, no shit, frankly. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that. I mean, even, like, honestly, the fact that I'm trying to, like, put together this memory and I'm not quite getting it straight about the whole Black controversy 
um, with the UUA, the I think it's the Black Caucus controversy, like that tells you something, right? Like that's not the part of our history that gets told. Like any number of us can can like conjure up um, James Reeb's name and the fact that like there was a Unitarian minister who was beaten to death at Selma. Like we tell that part of the story. But this other right. part goes unspoken a lot. Um, so I think it's, I think we can't like turn away from that when we're thinking about um, like who does Unitarian Universalism support and what kind of like spiritual sustenance and nurture are we truly contributing to society and the people who need it most? Um, mm. So. Yeah, that was a I very think, long-winded monologue. Well, there's a um, there's a, a like on the UA website. Mm-hmm. I found that there's kind of a um, timeline of it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, we but, should we should link to that so that there's a more yeah. <laughs> clear description than my like. Oh yeah, wait. <laughs> I'll link to it. I got. But I think the like, MFC question be on this five years ago. Yeah. Um, well, it's called the empowerment controversy on, uh, the UUA website. Um, and yeah, there's more information here than I can skim quickly enough to come up with a summary. That's a cool, we'll we'll Um, link to it so that people can look at it. Yeah. I might like insert, (laughs) I might do research later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be great. Cause this was, you know, (laughs) oh Yeah. I know about that. I think it's just because I think it's important. Like, so do I. This so do is something I. important to know, yeah. like, what actually happened here. Yep. Um. So, yeah, I'll record and add that. That would um, be amazing. Right here. Hello, everybody. This is Amanda from the future. Depending on which sources you look at, different elements of the story and happenings are emphasized. So I'm going to link to a number of different references in the podcast description. So first, a little bit of timeline. 1965 is when the March on Selma happened, in which there was a death of a white UU minister who was among the other religious leaders who had responded to Dr. King's call to join him. That man was named Reverend Reeb. Then in 1966, Martin Luther King gave the Ware Lecture at the UUA General Assembly. Then in 1967 is when the empowerment controversy happened. There were ongoing uprisings and unrest in American cities in the name of Black empowerment, and a bit more radicalization was happening. The civil rights movement was... Obviously, at no point was it ever monolithic, but at this point, it started to become increasingly fractured, and the UUA held an emergency meeting to talk about how to move forward. This was called the Emergency Conference. It was held at the Biltmore Hotel in New York in October 1967. A quarter of the conference was Black, whereas 1% of UUs across the country were Black, so there were not too many Black people in UU churches already. During this, the Black members of that conference withdrew to discuss amongst themselves the way that the UU church should move forward 
and support its black membership and support the, the struggle for racial justice. And they formed something called the Black Unitarian Universalist Caucus. And they came up with their own list of what they were calling non-negotiable demands, which included the $1 million funding to be delivered over a period of four years. And this really bumped up against the institutional, very unitarian resistance to authority and any kind of demand and commitment to talking everything out and taking time to make sure everyone's heard and there's discussion and debate and voting and democracy. And a lot of the white members of this conference saw this list of demands from the new Black Caucus as counter to the way that the institution should work. The reaction was really mixed. Some of the white members were unquestionably and completely in support of the resolutions put forth by the Black Caucus. Some were completely opposed. And I mean, not not all the Black members were totally in agreement either. There was a, a sort of splinter group that also formed that was meant to be more integrated, whereas the Black Caucus was entirely made up of Black people. It was reflective of the tension between integrationist racial justice fighters and Black self-determination justice fighters. And some people saw that as also separatist in a way that was contrary to Unitarian values. So over a couple of years, there were more meetings and some things were agreed to in terms of funding that million dollars over four years. And then it was put up for a vote again, even though it had already been decided on. Ultimately, Dana Greeley was a big part of bringing the Black Caucus back to the table after they walked out of a later conference. And then Dana Greeley's successor discovered that Dana Greeley had spent all of the financial reserves on other things. And so they had distributed not quite half a million dollars in support. They proposed to change the agreement with the Black Caucus to spreading the money over five years instead of four. And at that point, there had been too much waffling and the trust had really eroded. And so that was really a breaking point. And a lot of Black people left. And we're back. Thank you, Amanda, from the future yes. for doing that reading. You're great. Um, I can't believe how clearly and perfectly and eloquently <laughs> you described that. I'm so proud of you. Um, collecting memory is a good thing, right? When we can't quite get our words straight, it matters that we help each other. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm curious to know if there have been any attempts to write this historical wrong. Um, I mean, I think maybe more modern history. I think the fact that blue exists and I think does get funding from the UUA, which is Black Lives UU. Um, I think that's sort of the more modern iteration of this. Um, okay. So I I hope that we're doing better. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really know either. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a thing 
that we should know. Well, and I think it's As also like, is. and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about the whole, like the fact that MLK supported um, like universal basic income, money actually matters, right? It really matters. Like the really, fact really that, really this, matters. that this huge amount of funding was promised and then the, like the bank account was empty. I mean, Dana Greeley is a person who is lauded as being this extraordinary person. Um, and like, you, you can't look away from that. Um, no. Right. Like an empty and promise the- is like, that is a huge, who. I mean, part of like universalism is what lets us look directly at that. Exactly. Right. Like we can, we can be honest about this without combusting. Like, it, yeah. it won't re- diminish your humanity and thus like let's be honest about this um right part of what is sort of ironic is that i i did my year of training at concord the 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 uu church in concord and mm. when Dan, dana Greeley left the uua he went and became the minister at concord and so when the huh. mfc which is our credentialing body was like asking me about this <laughs> they were sort of testing the like what's your allegiance to this um right legacy of this incredibly perfect man who actually hmm. like made some really profoundly empty promises to black people in our denomination so it's a small hmm. world and it matters that we tell the truth yeah agreed so um and speaking of telling the truth okay but before i get that sorry just kidding um fake transition um i have one more question about um both this sermon actually and the one before about how the principles are up for revision yep um how many times have they been revised oh my gosh this is a this is another good like uu factoid my memory is that the only time they've actually been revised was to update the language so it wasn't as gendered um Hmm. And I want to say that was in, like, the 80s or something. So Hmm. there has not been a serious overhaul and reassessment of the principles since they were created. Um, Hmm. And so that's where, like, what the the UUA is doing now and the the commission that's specifically looking at this. um, Because, like, the eighth principle has been this really big push um, to talk more about um, white su- white supremacy and systemic racism. Um, and in, so there's been this push to like make an addition, whereas what's actually happening now is like a wholesale um, assessment with an eye towards including the um, the commitments of the eighth principle, but not just making it like a band-aid tacked on to the end. Um, Hmm. And so, like, we've talked in the past about the Commission on Institutional Change. And so all of these things are sort of tied together, um, where looking at the seven principles is being informed by the Commission on Institutional Change and everything that they, um, like, learned and noted about, like, the truth of, you know, white supremacy culture and our history and Unitarian Universalism and how... um, we can be better. Um, and that was where 
in my um, reflection about MLK, a lot of what um, people have started talking about is this, um, the culture of um, like being committed to reason beyond reason um, within Unitarian Mm. Universalism and this idea that, you know, like, academic information and scientific methods are the only valid ways of knowing. We've talked about this before, Um, Mm -hmm. which completely erases, you know, like embodied knowledge and (laughs) indigenous ways of knowing and oral history and all these other things. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, That is particularly interesting to me right now um because i just started working at like a research center yeah tell us about um well part of it is that i'm reading a lot of theory about qualitative research (laughs) um yeah (laughs) and actually like but it's like so the one of the theories is um it it's called grounded theory Um, and it's talking about rather than like a top down, like reason things out and then go find evidence for it. Yeah. Cause that won't create biased information. (laughs) Right. I mean, part of it was like human behaviors have are all social human knowledge production is all social. Like all of that is a given in this like thing. Can I just interject? Actually, yes, please. And say that I was a sociology major, sociology (laughs) slash anthropology. That's how the department was set up. And it drove me completely bonkers that my classmates who were like hard science majors would talk Mm -hmm. about how fluffy sociology was and how like hard science was real facts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, as if humans aren't the ones studying it from their social locations. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, back in the yeah. early 2000s, that was, like, <laughs> I was the weird friend. <laughs> but this – so these ideas, though, like, resistance to that is not new. Yeah. Like, these theory – like, this book that I was skimming and then reading articles about because yeah. they're shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, the theory is from the 60s. Like, really? Yes. Like, it's not. I probably knew that like 15 years ago. There's, I mean, there's (laughs) an awful, I don't know if you knew there was a lot going on in the 60s. Some things happened in the 1960s, guys. In the, yeah, in terms of the way we think about things. Um, Mm -hmm. And by we, I mean like mainstream, like people had been thinking about these things for a long time. Anyway. Anyways, like powerful um, white people and institutions. Yeah, exactly. Um, Cool, cool. But it was, I mean, it was really interesting because there was, like, this inherent, like, this this kind of a flipping of that direction. So rather than, mm-hmm. like, using, like, logic and reason to come to conclusions yeah. and then going to find evidence, right? it's sort of, like, starting the other way. So, yeah. I mean, not to – I mean, the goal is not to, like, achieve objectivity because, right. like, that's Does not, not exist. possible. But this direction is, like – another way to be like grounded in and closer to the things that you actually gather as yeah. data as a starting place for theory. Right. Um, which is novel, yeah. I guess. Um, if but you're so, not like, a was, sociology major. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but then there, it also specifically, because I think there's like definitely that distinction between like, okay, well, yeah, that's true if you're studying humans, but like not yeah. if you're studying the natural world. Yes. Right, like right. the, you know, the natural world is objective. And it's like, right. okay, but they you're went through this human. whole thing of like, yeah, as soon as you turn it into data, right, then you've made it a social object because like – right. You decide what questions to ask about yeah. it. You decide what scale of measurement is has meaning. Like, there's no intrinsic system of measurement on the earth. Yeah. You decide what inches are. Um, yep. Like, you decide how to collect Even it. Even language like, is a human construct, right? Like, right. Like, every decision that you make yeah. about, like, just starting with what questions to ask. And whose questions are valid. distinctly human. Right. Is distinctly like, human. Yeah. Yeah, and carries with it all of the assumptions of your age. And yep. that's, like, just true of science. Right. So a lot of the, like, approaches and theories that I'm reading about, like, don't strive for objectivity because they think that's kind of besides the point. Yeah. Like, it's it's more of, like, using people's, like, situate, like, where people are situated as, like – a specific advantage in some cases. Interesting. Or, yeah. like, some places are, like, richer places. Some people's perspectives are richer places to start yep. to get, like, more of a view of, like, dominant culture yeah. than others. Yeah. Anyway. That's great. Why did we start talking about that? Oh, because of research and because things. Because of research and reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and um, part of this, right, is like the idea of interconnectedness and like you are a human and no one is objective and you do have a social location and you are like, you know, informed by the people around you. And this idea that we can, you know, worship reason as some ultimate truth that is more valid than other truths um, is like very very steeped in individualism and white supremacy and like mm-hmm. academia and all these systems of power that um say that only some people matter right um and yeah. only certain ways of knowing matter and so part of this shift in our den- denomination to try to be more anti-racist and to try to be more um what's what's a good way of saying this you know Fully, fully living into our universalist foundation. Um, within covenant. Within, co- yeah, thank you. Like, mm-hmm. we, we can't worship reason so much. Like, we can't, we can't ignore all the ways that we're connected and all of those things matter. Yeah. So. Um, I would love to talk about the great resignation yeah i would love Um, for you to talk about the great resignation (laughs) let's talk about labor (laughs) in the united i was thinking about how the two of us doing this is like (laughs) feels like a whole brain (laughs) do you know what i mean i love that i love it because it's like i know that i can rely on you for things where i'm like i don't what can you talk about this more and hopefully you feel like you can rely on me yeah For, like, how do you think about that? And I can rely on you for that, and I can rely on the internet for the things you ask me about. Amazing. (laughs) I'm secretly Googling everything. 
that's yeah actually you would be able to hear in my audio if i'm typing um, <laughs> that's fine so anyway um yeah the great resignation so yes i mean so we're actually recording this before yeah. you've before the service yeah so in which service you delivered that yep right um so we don't actually know what the content of the rest of the um, service will be because you're co-leading it with other people. Yes. Queuing um, back to the the Circle RE and the joint programs. Um, mm-hmm. So I recorded my portion of the reflection, but I don't have the other two ministers. And so um, their reflections yet. And I got to hear a sneak peek of it. Yeah. Um, I might actually publish this after the 30th. So That's that cool. I can... Who that. knows what time is? <laughs> anyway, it's fake. Um... So, basically, I think, oh, what do I want to say about the Great Resignation? You want um, to talk about um, consent and labor. Yeah. So, I think we were talking, we were talking about this before we started recording, like, how to look at um, what's happening with labor in this country in a way that, like, goes beyond the demand to raise the minimum wage. Yeah. Um, Because I think there's a misconception that the fundamental, like, there's a a problem in the fundamental underlying logic here. Yeah. That, like, your survival, let alone thrival, um, (laughs) good word, is like conditional upon you participating in the formal capitalist labor market. Yeah. Or even Um, like your ability to receive care for your body. Yeah. You know, aka healthcare. Yes. And so with that as the fundamental basic approach to how we like have and pool and organize labor, yeah. that means like anyone who doesn't like outside of work have the means to survive is coerced into doing that labor in right. that way. Right. Which then, right, if we add in the social constructions of racism and all of the mm-hmm. things, right, that's yeah. going to, like, have a more and more and more extreme impact on people who are disenfranchised in more and more and more ways. Um, yes. Who are the people who are also, right, like, most silenced on purpose. Um, yeah. Again, Q, right? White supremacy culture and et cetera. Sure. Um <laughs> Yeah, Back but to so, you, I mean, Amanda. You... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laurel. Um, but I mean, thinking about it that way, like, if you think about a consent-based practice in mm-hmm. your life, like, getting consent from someone definitely means that they would be okay if they said no. Yeah, it's not coercive. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like... There's pretty much no such thing as consensual yeah. labor in the United States. Yeah. Or maybe almost anywhere. Um, yeah, that is a wild thing to think about. And I think there's a really, I mean, that's a pretty um, scary thing to think about. Yeah. Like, everyone is walking around, you know, not in control of consenting the way that they're like time is spent and bodies are used and yeah. everything like that. But I think like for me, like the immediate like backlash that I anticipate to that is like, 
well, we wouldn't be able to survive anyway if people didn't work, right? You know, we wouldn't have things to, like, survive on. Yeah. And I think that is extremely stuck in the same logic of <laughs> capitalism that leads to coercive labor yeah. practices. Yeah. Like, even even if you have a quote-unquote good job, yeah. like, if you can't leave that job or right. you won't survive, you're not there Right. With full consent. Right. Um, and I even if like, you like your job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I like my job and I can't not have a job. Right. Yeah. Like, that's not a thing. And I think that's true for right. The vast majority of people. And I think like there. That comes definitely to a point where you're like, what would it look like? if people were engaging in labor consensually? Like, how could you build a system based in consent where people's labor is freely and joyfully I feel like you might have ideas about that. Do you want to share your insights? Maybe. (laughs) I actually, so there was a a New York Times article that popped up on the internet somewhere this week in my somewhere on the internet, you know, Instagram, who knows? Um, Mm -hmm. And I read as much as the headline, um, and it was all I needed to know. And it was some something about this study um, that showed that, um, like, low-income moms who are given direct payments, one of the results is that the cognitive functioning of their children increases. Mm-hmm. Mind blown. And I immediately thought of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love being associated with that. Isn't that great? Yeah. Um. I mean, honestly, I think guaranteed income, I mean, I personally kind of think of it as like harm reduction during the transition to a more fundamentally changed economy. Yeah. Um, And MLK seemingly would agree with you. Yeah. Because like basic income or guaranteed income by itself doesn't challenge the underlying. Right, right, right. Like logic. It's a bridge. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I I'm more than happy to sit here and say, I do not know what that looks like. An economy yeah. where labor is fully consenting. I yeah. don't know. Um, well, how would you, right? Right. But like the people who are going to help me figure it out <laughs> and who are going to figure it out for themselves and their own communities, like yeah. that might look different in every neighborhood. Yeah. But like all of the people who can figure that out need to be able to have space to breathe in order to think yeah. about how to figure it out. Yeah. And like my my hope is that having a little bit of the financial pressure off gives them back a little bit of their time and energy. Agency, yeah. And, you know, at least maybe puts a finger on the scales of power between worker and, you know, employer. Yeah. To let them have a little bit more like room to think about those alternative pathways and alternative ways of being because like I know that like people who have enough time to think about that now like it's not enough (laughs) like well and if you are those people right you're already like systemically empowered usually Uh, yes right in a lot of ways I mean a lot of the most effective organizing and work is done by people who really don't have the time or energy to do it and somehow find it. Like people who really are like on the front lines of like the most disenfranchised. Yeah. Yeah. Like the most um, 
like visibly violent outcomes of our economic system. Yeah. Um, and there, I mean, there's there's already well, it's the places where incredible it's most leadership clear that it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Like right. there's there's if you're poor in America or you're black in America, like or you're like a you know poor trans black woman in America, like there's no there's no facade about the fact that it right. doesn't work. Right. There's no facade about how the system is stacked against you and it's stacked to benefit certain people um, exponentially, right? It's very easy to see um, if you if you exist on a position in the margins, um, which again and, is yeah. where this like reason and this sort of academia, the, the idea that those are the places where the knowledge is most like lauded or most valuable, um, I don't think is theologically sound. No, I mean, it's not practical. No. Let alone anything <laughs> <Right>. else. <laughs> I mean, it's just not good knowledge production, if you want to think about it that way. I mean, it's just not. And yeah. so, like, the most strong, like, the strongest vision of leadership is absolutely coming from people who are at those economic margins. Yeah. And I think, like, having more people be available to, like, follow that vision and that leadership. Yeah is what we really need. Right. And like have the healthcare so that they like they are physically well enough to be able to live longer and organize mm-hmm. more, right? Like all of yeah. those things. Um, yeah. We need elders to help yeah. us see it through. Yeah. And we have to make sure that they get to be elders. Like yeah. we really need them. And young people, um, right? Like of course whole, I mean we need everyone. Whole, this is Right. Yeah, world I mean, it's building not some... is a is a collective yeah. process, not yeah, a I mean, not and... a messiah process. No, I mean, and none of this comes from like a place of like, oh, it's the right thing to do. Which, like, it might be the right thing to do. <laughs> the truth is that like we're screwed if we don't do it. All of us. <laughs> All of us. Right? Might we so, be like, interconnected? Is like, yes. If, if the pandemic has taught us anything, we talked about this in the beginning. Like, which I think is where this great resignation thing is coming back to is, yeah, is like any, I don't know, like lie society has been telling about the idea that we're not connected and we don't affect each other. Like, come on now. Mm-hmm. Like the lie is up and it's been up for a while. Um, and like, po- like public opinion data shows has already showed a trend towards people not believing that anymore, that like we're, you know, there's like a backing away from the individualistic good um, self-determination, <laughs> like yeah. mythos. Yeah. Which um, I think is amazing. Right. The, and yeah. that's where I think the like massive culture shift can feel really scary and like things are falling apart. Um, and it can also be really hopeful. And that's part of where having some kind of like, grounding in what you believe and how you make meaning um, can be really important because like the word apocalypse means uncovering um, and and I think having the the wherewithal in community to know how to make meaning of massive shifts um, is is really necessary what was the term that you used for it earlier the like digesting despair or something oh metabolizing um, something metabolized in community yes. yeah there we go full circle yay 
I love circles. Yeah. They're some of my favorite geometric shapes. Circles? <laughs> I love uh-huh. that. They're, they have very cool properties. Yeah. I really anyway. like hexagons. They're like circles, but that fit together like honeycombs. It's like really good boundaries with maximum connection. They do, do I sound like a in a beautiful way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but funny story. Yeah. A circle is what you get if you keep adding sides this to is a true. hexagon. This so is true. like a circle is just a hexagon with infinite. an infinite number of sides. Wow. And an end gone. Anyway, not the hexagon. Were you a math major? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. A little bit. <laughs> cool see two halves of the brain but i you know i haven't been in a math class for at least a month now so wow i don't know does statistics count as math not really yeah that's how i got my math credit in college and i thought it was really silly yeah (laughs) it's like this is turning into like granular weird factoids (laughs) about laurel and amanda (laughs) from center parts to math credits all of this is, like, secretly training for if we ever, like, need to play Two Truths and a Lie. <laughs> and we'll know, like, if you really listen close to the podcast, win. if you win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that's enough, like, yeah. Two Truths and a Lie fodder. Oh, yeah. You, you have today. to go somewhere. Um, luckily, I don't have to go anywhere. Someone is coming to me, though. Amazing. Oh, I love not having to go anywhere. Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, it does mean I have to, like, vacuum. So up next <laughs> so. month, since we're not yes. doing Celebration Week, I think what we're going to be talking about is um, compassion fatigue in caregivers. And then Ooh. I think I'm going to give a sermon about um, sexuality and, like, actual theological foundations for being in favor of diverse sexualities instead of just like we don't hate gay people which is like yes also that's not good enough so Mm -hmm. next up like (laughs) wow until next time it's gonna be really interesting yeah i look forward to you know february valentine's day knowledge Light and fluffy and cute. Yay, as always. Uh Nothing serious will be discussed. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay, happy January to you all. Happy January, everybody. We'll (laughs) see you you in January. Okay. (laughs) All right. Peace out. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org. All are welcome.